One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. I've embraced that it's my duty. It's my obligation to be open and vulnerable and to share the things that I've experienced and gone through and, you know, with the idea that there may be someone out there listening right now that it can help. It's, it's your, it's your damn duty. Uh, and I feel very, very, you know, very, very strongly about this. So when you asked me to come on this and, you know, speak about very personal things, I was like, hell yes. Because again, I feel like it's my obligation and duty. Thank you for tuning in to Stop and Search. And today we are joined by Dan Clark, better known as Nitro, the original gladiator. He is the yardstick. Here's what a gladiator is all about. He is the star of the documentary on Netflix, Muscles and Mayhem. There is so much that we get into in this conversation. Dan has had incredible tragedy and trauma in his life, but he comes out of it with inspiration and he wants to share this as well. His learning has been deep-rooted, and he's got so many perspectives that are useful, and I can't thank Dan enough for this conversation. So let's get into this. This is Stop and Search on Scroobius Pips Distraction Pieces Network, brought to you by ACAST in association with Law Enforcement Action Partnership across the globe. Here we go. Behind your barricades Yeah, but how long can I stay Behind your barricades thank you for subscribing to stop and search and today it's a brilliant conversation it really is with dan nitro clark the original gladiator the one that stood out he was the yardstick he was the the mold of what a gladiator is to such a degree that he went through the whole series in in the u.s become one of the presenters towards the end and dan went on to do so much in way of film tv books he's got a book out as well called f dying which i really really urge you to check out it's on my reading list as we speak and if you want to find him please do go to instagram and dan nitro clark also his website is dan clark.net and he is just the most fascinating character and the most personable and kind as well i really can't thank him enough everything he did within this conversation being honest being open and just sharing the insights he's got so thank you so much please do check him out and go find Muscles and Mayhem on Netflix it is a fascinating documentary even if you're not into gladiators it is just a really interesting perspective on entertainment athleticism and everything that comes with that world of course drugs and hedonism and all of those things as well so let's get straight into this conversation with Dan thank you so much for listening I'll see you on the other side Right, thank you so much, Dan, for joining me. Uh, I, I'm going to completely geek out of you because, as I said to you before we started recording, um, I used to watch you from a. I was probably ten or twelve, late night ITV in this country, American Gladiators, and you were the one. You was the guy that stood out. You were the guy that most people looked to because you you were that 
you've probably heard this a million times before, but as a character, you were quite tapped into almost like the wrestling theme of a good guy, but a bad guy. You had, the, you had that ambiguity to your character. How much of an influence did all of that Americana wrestling play on your character within American Gladiators? It didn't really factor into who I was. I had a job to do, and there was a character description for Nitro. Loud, explosive, cocky, arrogant, hates to lose. So all I tried to do was take my normal personality and let that side of me free up a little bit who, you know, when you lost, really wanted to go shove a guy. But, you know, because you were a proper gentleman, you wouldn't, you know, you shake your hand and say, good game, you know, and inside you'd be burning. So I think American Gladiators just gave me the opportunity to act upon that instinct that a lot of people have that we don't express in order to be proper and accepted. And it was a lot of fun. You know, what's interesting is, you know, 25 years later, I have people, you know, um, well, you're actually a nice guy, Dan. You know, I, I didn't like you as Nitro growing up. And I'm like, it was a character. But, you know, with the wrestling, you know, being so large, uh, some people still think wrestling is real, that the results aren't predetermined, you know. So it, it, it just goes to show you different people's mindsets approaching the same thing. Uh, yeah, it's, it's so true that um, as gr- growing up as an impressionable child, I used to do think that you were the bad guy. You know, th- I had no reason to believe otherwise. You were you did the character so well. And I think that's why the new Netflix documentary that's out with you being one of the main stars of it, you come across, I'm not just saying this because you're in front of me, but you come across so well because there's a self-deprecation to, to what you say in the documentary. You're very self-aware as well of the presence of how the media works. So how much over the years have you participated in the media and been a voice that's out there doing the various different things you do? Have you done a lot of media work since then? It seems like since the show went off the air, I've been in the media for the last 25 years. You know, I've written uh, two different best-selling books I've been on other shows. Uh, I cr- created a, a a live obstacle adventure race in America, which I ran for 10 years called the Gladiator Rock and Run, which was similar to Tough Mudder Spartan Race. And you guys had one there in England that Tough Mudder derived from. So I would be out in front, you know, doing publicity. We went to different states uh, across the United States. Uh, so I've always been in that public eye. So it really hasn't changed with Netflix. It just brought it back up to another level of uh, relevance and relevance in the sense that we really saw how many people love the American gladiators. And I've gotten, you know, on my Instagram and Facebook pages and emails, I've gotten people all over the world talking how instrumental and how much they love that show. And I kind of forgotten you know, it was something I did and, and just after Muscles and Mayhem aired on Netflix, just the outpouring of, yeah, from people was just uh, shocking, shocking, shocking to me because to me it was a show. It was a show. It was a job. You know, I had a two-year-old kid who was hungry. I had to feed him. I, I got 
just had gotten cut from an American football team. You know, I got whacked. <laughs> we don't want you. And I had to figure out a way to, to put food in the table for the kids. So I came to Hollywood and was trying different stuff. And the American Gladiators, it was, just, it was, it was a gig, you know, and you got done. You're like, okay, it's eight years. Let's go look for the next gig. And only through time uh, have you been able to see that the impact that it had on people's lives, uh, uh, which is, you know, which is interesting. I'm going, to, I'm going to mention your American football career as well, because again, as a child of the 80s, I'm a big American football fan. Um, and I want to know about the physicalities that it, that both, well, all, all sports have taken on your body over the years. You know, you've been at a high, high level of of what the body goes through. So how how do you feel now? But having had a career in football, um, I, want to, I want to speak more about the toll that it takes in American Gladiators, because that, that process, that having to be on the ball night after night and not letting injuries heal. How, how do you feel in this day and age? I feel fantastic, Jason. I feel fantastic. Um, you know, it's interesting. I think everyone's body tells a story of their life. You know, you look at a guy, you know, we had a gladiator named Sabre Red Williams. You look at his hands and he had 200 cuts, little nicks and cuts on his hands just from fighting as a kid, growing up with uh, Bloods in the Crips. He fought every day. And you could just look at his hands and you understood the story of who he was. And I've been thinking about this a lot lately. Uh, And I look at myself through that lens and I can see who I am and what my life has been. Uh, and, And I see another person, you know, I can see. I see a person who's, you know, obese, large. And I can say, oh, I understand a little bit about their mindset, who they are as a person. I see a person who's too thin. I can say, I understand them. I see a person, you know, I see a person, you know, with scars, you know, on their chest, their back. I, I get an idea of who they are. And, and I put that lens upon myself. And uh, I had a reconstructive lower lumbar surgery five or six years ago. I had a knee replacement three year, two and a half years ago, I tore my left bicep tendon uh, in between those two. You know, I've got a few scars on my face and I say, okay, you know, what story does my body tell? And I say, okay, you see my face, you can see that I've been into fights, you look at my nose, or I've been in some kind of physical contact. (laughs) I look at my, you know, the, the, the scars, you know, on my stomach is a 10 inch scar. Okay. That guy has done some type of lifting, some type of collision sport, or he's been in a bad car accident, <laughs> right? You, and then I look at my, you know, the knee replacement. I said, okay, I, I would say if I saw this man who had a six inch scar on his knee, a 10 inch scar on his stomach, and he lifted up his left bicep and, and showed me that his bicep tendon was torn. This is probably a guy who goes too hard, who doesn't know when to stop, who doesn't listen to the signs of pain in his body, and he continues to charge forward. Then the next question I would ask is why? Why does he do that? And I think that's when you get to the more interesting side of, you know, psychology and humanity. You see something, you know, and then you ask why? How do we get there? You look at, you know, addiction, which runs, you know, rampant in my family. And I see the picture of the addiction. 
I know what it looks like. I know what many, many times the outcome of addiction is. You know, my father died from a overdose when he was 58 years old. So I know the outcome. My younger brother died at 44, 45 from an alcohol-related, I wouldn't call it an overdose, but it's an alcohol-related death. And you know, we call these um, the diseases of despair. Right, So I can see the outcomes in all these, but I think the fundamental question, like when you look at a person's body and physicality, you ask, why? Why? And that's perplexing to me because I think looking on the outside, my father you know, started with cocaine and he was our local neighborhood dealer in America. Um, you know, not like, you know, Tony Montana, Scarface. He was the guy that sold, you know, $50, half gram, gram, eight ball, um, uh, those kind of things. When I was in my last two years of high school and throughout college, he started doing his own product, hence the addiction issue. Uh, was out in rehab a couple different times. Uh, finally, he had to get out of the business because he couldn't stop doing it. And then that addiction went to uh, opioids, where he ended up, I think at 40, in his 50s, now taking up to 50 Vicodin a day. And you know, your body builds up a tolerance to it, so he had to take more and more to get the same result. And he had been to rehab twice already for Vicodin, came back and finally went on a new program, a methadone program, which is popular here in the United States, methadone to help you get off the Vicodin. Well, he took his methadone. He'd been in about the program for, you know, a month and he took his methadone and um, he took a couple of Vicodin on top of it. And it was just too much for his system and uh, he just didn't wake up. So. As someone who's watching, there's a and participating, there's a sense of, you know, helplessness. How do I help this person? And they seem like they're helping themselves, going to the rehab, doing these things, but for some people, it just doesn't stick. And it, it's confounding to me and the same with my younger brother you know he loved to drink and he wasn't the guy who would you know drink and fight he would quietly drink you know in his room you know beer after beer and then he would go on these huge binges on weekends where he would go get a hotel room and drink a couple fifths of vodka then come back you know and go to work and and um over time this took a toll on his liver and the doctors just said to him, look, so look, you keep drinking like this, you're going to die. And he would get uh, the bloated belly. He would get the yellow, the jaundice, and he would go into the hospital. And he'd be scared. He would go into a rehab and he would come out of that rehab and, oh, I'm going to do it. And, you know, it happened a couple of times. And each time he went into the hospital again, when he fell off the wagon, so to speak, the doctors told him the same thing. Hey, look, man, you're going to die if you don't change. And he would change for a little bit. And the last time he went to the hospital, 45 years old, and this was a high school athlete, you know, who was a fantastic, you know, basketball player, a good student, um, healthy. 
And uh, the last time he went in, doctors just looked at him and just, you know, I was in the room with my older sister and they just said, hey, you're not getting out. You're going to die. We're, we can't help you anymore. And, you know, as heartbreaking as it was, I remember the doctor telling first my sister and I, hey, this is the prognosis. His, you know, liver has stopped. His kidney has stopped. Um, he's got these toxins. Um, uh, he's not going to make it. And, and, and he's conscious and he's, he's lucid and he's aware. And they're telling us this outside while he's in the room. And I remember looking at the doctor and I just said, hey, don't tell me this. Go tell him this. And I watched the doctor walk in and tell him through the glass window. And you just see this, you know, young 45-year-old man laying in bed. And you just see him all of a sudden turn into a little boy and start to weep. You know, because, you know, he, he he's talking. He's coherent. He can move. He can get up and get down. But to have someone tell you your, your, your kidneys and livers are failing and there's nothing we can do. And, you know, died seven, eight days later in the hospital. Um, and it's, like I said, Jason, it's heartbreaking. It's sad. Uh, I don't have answers. I have a lot of, um, anger, a lot of, you know, resentment towards both of them, my brother and my, my father for, you know, not doing what they needed to be here for everyone else. It felt very, very selfish. Um, and, you know, one of the reasons I wanted to come is to figure out, you know, how we can have an open discussion and advocate so there's not people like me, my sister, you know, the 11 nieces and nephews that um, I have, that my brother had. Uh, that my father left behind. So there's not so many people with these gaping holes. I can tell you with my father, I think my father, you know, we lost my older brother when I was 10 and he was 12. And that was to an accident. It was an electrical accident and he died. Um, literally got electrocuted and died a few hours later. And like I said, I was 10 and my older brother was 12. And my father never got help dealing with his grief. And I think that was a uh, something of that time of that man, you know, who didn't ask for help, who didn't need help, who just grit his teeth, you know, bit down and, you know, clenched his fist and, you know, moved forward. He first found comfort in alcohol to numb the pain. But he never raised his hand and said, look, I, I'm feeling pain. I'm feeling hurt right now. Um, I am so, you know, gosh darn broken inside and I have to figure this out. He wasn't vulnerable enough, wasn't a man enough to have that conversation. So when I look back and I ask why, you know, I think, you know, from my life experience and knowledge of, of what I know now is that his pain and his grief was like a cancer that slowly killed him and ate him alive from inside out because he did not deal with it. 
He tried to drink to numb the pain. He tried to do cocaine to, you know, uh, lift himself up to be happy. You know, then he tried the opioids after a, a car accident for an injury. And it's just because he didn't do that internal work because he was afraid to face that, didn't think he needed to face that. And I think the challenge is it's not consciously recognizable by the person who is going through the addiction and the pain. I'm not talking, you know, by the time, I'm not talking a young kid who gets an injury or somebody gets an injury and they take opioids and the opioids, you know, change their brain chemistry and it's so freaking hard to get out. This was a lifelong thing for him. And it started with him not dealing with that pain. Uh, And it just snowballed, snowballed. And I don't think he was consciously aware. And I think that's the mistake a lot of people make where they say, oh, I'm in pain. I didn't deal with that grief 20 years ago. So I'm taking a, a, a pill or I'm snorting cocaine, right? You know, what, you know what I mean, Jason? It's it's hidden and it's not there. And I think that's the reason sometimes that a lot of this you know, addiction happens. And then once you change the brain, especially from what I read about like the opioids and, and crack, it's such a such a hard road back. You've absolutely have been through trauma. Yeah, you know, you've lost so many people in this. Uh, how how do you deal with your trauma? How do you feel? Have you, have you had moments of needing to turn to things, or have you dealt with things differently? So, the major trauma I had when I was ten that was the first major one. When I was, well, you know, looking back through time, and you know, I've been able to lift the hood of the car to see what makes the engine run, you, you know, and I think that's um, a lot of times with the work on the self and the personal growth, you have to be able to do that. You have to say, I'm making these decisions. Why am I making them? What makes me tick? What am I, you know, not wanting to feel? Because in the simple sense, anything we put into our body that alters our perception is we're altering it. Even if it should come home at night and you have a glass of wine, you know, I, I said, why am I having that glass of wine? Why am I having that drink? I want to change how I feel. And that's, you have to recognize that. Oh, that's what this is doing. It's changing how I feel. Oh, okay. Well, are there other ways to change how I feel? So what does alcohol do, right? Alcohol helps you relax a little bit, it seems like. And there's a part of the brain. Uh, and again, I'm, I'm not a scientist, but I know it lowers the inhibition in your brain. I've read that. It lowers inhibition so you're not as inhibited and it makes you more social. Um, okay. Is there a way for me to do that that's more healthy? It, or I take, I have a drink. I have a lot of friends who have a drink after work to relieve the stress. I'm just so wound up. I need to wind down. Okay. Are there other ways I can do that? And it's just finding, you know, I'm uh, new actions, new things you can do. But the challenge is we live in a world where we want immediate feedback. You know, we want to do something. We take a pill, take a drink, eat something, do something. We want that, uh, that immediate gratification. So, you know, coming home after a long day, 
and saying, you know what, I need to relieve some stress, maybe getting on my exercise bike for 10 or 15 minutes, maybe taking a, you know, 15, 20 minute walk. There's a study in, I want to say it was done in Great Britain about the minimal amount of minimal, minimal effective dosage of outdoor time in nature. It could be a park. It could be your neighborhood if you have trees that you need to have or do where it actually lowers your cortisol, blood pressure, adrenaline. And it was 20 minutes. There's a fantastic book I'm reading, The uh, the comfort crisis, the comfort crisis, fantastic. It goes into all these different studies and it, you know, it was 20 minutes, but people come home and they say, Oh, I just want to drink. I, you know, it's two minutes, but they can get the same effect in a healthier way for going out and, and, you know, walking in nature, which again, it can be a park. It can be anywhere your neighborhood. If you have trees, you know, for, for 20 minutes, apparently in nature, there's something called fractals and it's the sequence of things uh, like a fraction that are similar, but repeated in different sizes and shapes. So you look at a tree, you've got the trunk of the tree, you've got branches, you've got smaller branches and even smaller branches. There's something about how we're built um, and made that we love those fractals and it does something inside to help relax us where you don't have it like, you know, walking downtown London, but you have it walking where you can see nature. And, and the Japanese, I'm half Japanese, there's a practice they started called forest gazing where they walk into the forest and, you know, there's all these benefits, the lowering of the blood pressure. So for me, I've pretty much don't drink. And it's not because I'm a quitter. <laughs> People say that you quit. It's, it's because I've found ways to get that same relaxation effect without having to take the alcohol. And it was interesting for me, my journey with alcohol, because when I was in my 20s, I partied a lot, you know, being in Hollywood on TV, we we're drinking, we were doing, you know, all kinds of illegal drugs. My dad was a cocaine dealer, right? And and he was the kind of guy who wanted to experience everything with his son, you know? So at 18, my dad's lining up, you know, rails for me, like, hey, son, let's party. And everyone in the neighborhood said, you got the coolest dad. He does cocaine with you. <laughs> you know, and that's again, 20 year olds speaking, 19 year olds, 22 years old, you know, he'd come up to a, one of my football games in college and he would bring, you know, like some Coke with him. And, you know, the, my buddies and the players would all do cocaine with my dad, you know, oh, your dad's so cool. He does cocaine with him, you know, and at that age, I didn't realize that it, it was you know, a horrible, you know, parental example. And, and, uh, you know, I, I would be like a gas now doing that with my son, but when you're in it, that is your normal. That's just, Hey, that's just what you do. And it took a long time to break out of that cycle. And instead of seeing my father as the cool guy that everybody loves, that's the charisma guy to see him as an addict who was broken. And that separation from someone in your life, especially if it's a parental figure, it, it's, it's, it's really hard. It's hard uh, emotionally. It's, it's really, really difficult to, you know, to have those conversations um, or not to have those conversations. Usually, I, I think in most situations, people just do the lack of confrontation. They don't speak that you ghost people. I guess that's the term today. Just don't talk to them. You don't know how to deal with it. You don't emotionally have the words. You don't want the confrontations, so you just ghost them. And I did that with my father, you know, quite a few times. Yeah, um, 
Yeah. So I, I, I do ramble on, uh, uh, Jason, you asked me a question and I, I talked for 20 minutes. So my apologies if I'm uh, weighing heavy on listeners' ears. I was going to say, in many ways, you're, you're the dream guest and the nightmare guest because the answers you give are so eloquent and so wide-ranging that I'm writing down notes here. Right? Get, back to that, get back to that. I've got a list of about five different notes already uh, just because, again, what you say is just, it's just everything that we need to be having a conversation in society. But Jason, you know, you know what I've realized? I, I've realized that, you know, as someone, you know, who's advancing in life and anybody who's advancing in life, who's had a life experience that can help other people, it is your obligation and your duty to share the knowledge, to share the life experience. You know, I've embraced that it's my duty. It's my obligation to be open and vulnerable and to share the things that I've experienced and gone through and, you know, with the idea that there may be someone out there listening right now that it can help. It's, it's your, it's your damn duty. Uh, and I feel very, very, you know, very, very strongly about this. So when you asked me to come on this and, you know, speak about very personal things, I was like, hell yes, because, Again, I feel like it's my obligation and duty. You asked me a question earlier I didn't answer, um, and you asked me something about what I did to help myself, you know, growing up with um, a father, you know, who was uh, an alcoholic and, a, and an addict, um, you know, who I absolutely worshipped and, and idolized, and how I dealt with past trauma. So I think when you're younger, you're reactive to trauma. You don't have the you don't have the emotional capability to be proactive. This happened to me. My older brother died, and uh, it, literally in my arms when I was ten. And you're reactive. Okay, how do I survive? How do how do I get by? What is my place in the world? Uh, so you're very reactive and you're learning along the way if you have great good parental figures they act as your guide like now today if that happened the you know your kid would be in therapy in a second you know the parents hopefully as a community would would be around him and and, and guiding them you know for me there wasn't one conversation there wasn't like oh man you lost your brother i know it's hard because my dad was grieving so much and drinking he didn't have one conversation. My mom is Japanese, got a lover, you know, but she didn't have the emotional wherewithal to even have a conversation because her culture is very uh, closed emotionally, at least in, in her time period. So for me, it was just survival. And then, you know, how do I find significance? How do I find a way to feel good about myself? Because through effort, we build self-esteem. Continue to effort, accomplishment. Self-esteem isn't someone giving you something. Self-esteem is only earned through actions that you take where you feel proud of yourself, where you get positive feedback, especially as an adolescent. So I found that through sports. I never spoke about my brother. I Most people didn't even know I had a brother. Uh, and then when... I finished playing American football, which was very brief. It was two years. Um, I went to 
Hollywood to, you know, try my hand there. And then I got incredibly lucky, you know, getting a show that um, American Gladiators that nobody knew what it was. It wasn't this TV phenomenon. It was this, this crazy idea looking for athletes who are good in front of the camera. You know, it was, it, it was, I mean, if you watch Muscles and Mayhem on Netflix, you'll see <laughs> it, it wasn't what you guys remember. It was just this idea and it was, it was a job. And with American Gladiators had great success, you know, uh, was billboards selling out the biggest arenas, you know, in the world on TV and magazines. And I had everything I wanted, you know, as a young kid, you know, more than I ever dreamed of. I, I didn't think I'd make anything out of my life. You know, I didn't have any hopes, any dreams when I was 10 or 12 years old. I just wanted to live. I just wanted to survive. I was just trying to figure out how to get through life, how to get through eighth grade, ninth grade, 10th grade, high school, college. You know, I just, just trying to figure it out. And I, I didn't, you know, have this dream to be a big star, you know, it just, it just happened. And I had more than I ever thought I would have, I had, you know, more fame, I had, you know, money and, you know, women uh, and I was partying all the time. And this strange thing started happening to me. I would be partying, you know, doing different drugs. And then I would wake up in the morning, you know, kind of like hung over, you know, kind of high out of my mind still. And I'd wake up and I'd just start weeping. I'd be, I'd be waking up on the floor. It happened a few times. I was crying. And I go, this is weird. You know, why am I, you know, I have everything that anybody would think you would want. And yet there's something inside of me that's, you know, bubbling up to the surface where I'm crying and I, I couldn't figure it out. And then it happened to me uh, when I wasn't under the influence of any drug where I was just driving down the street uh, one day and I just had this spontaneous burst of tears and I had to pull over the side of the road and I'm like, what the hell is happening? You know, I, I, I'm this big, strong dude. I've got everything I want, but yet there's this something trickling up into me, you know, the body, right? It's, it's coming up and I'm not consciously aware of it. It's not like I'm sitting there thinking, you know, oh, this happened to me. I'm so sad. It was just looking for a way to manifest. And again, it's when you have everything you want and you're still not happy you know there's an issue. Because if you have so many things you don't want in your life, you know, you can see that there could be some unhappiness. I don't have career success. I don't have love. I don't have, you know, friends. I don't have this. And like, yeah, God, I'm kind of unhappy. And I get down. But on the reverse side, Jason, when you've got everything and you're like, oh, shit, you know, what is this? So that's, that's the time in the middle of gladiators or height that I, you know, just had to raise my hand and say, I needed, I, I need some help. I need to figure this out. And I had an acting coach who said, you know, Dan, you should try therapy. And this was 19, maybe 92, 93. And still there was a stigma to therapy, you know, not so much in LA, Los Angeles, you know, uh, because I think the largest cities sometimes are at the forefront of different movements, good or bad. But there was still a stigma because when I grew up, you know, therapy was for crazy people. 
You know, it's like, oh, that person's in therapy. Oh, don't give him a scissors. You know, watch out for little Mikey. You know, he's in therapy, you know, and it was there was a lot of stigma to it. But but in the 90s, there was still some stigma to it. And, you know, my acting coach, Larry Moss, was like, you should probably get some therapy. It would be really, really good. And that's when I started to deal with, you know, losing you know, my older brother, you know, my hero, my rock, the, you know, the, the guy who I thought should have lived instead of me because he was bigger, stronger, better. And there's a tremendous amount of guilt associated with that. So that's when I opened up the hood, Jason, and I started to see what was making me tick. And it was probably the first time I remember crying in front of another human being Um was in front of that therapist and I said, I'm healed. I went three times. I was in my mid twenties. And then, um, you know, things slowly started creeping back in and the discovery of self and the journey of self is a lifelong journey. I still check in once in a while because I still want to have my operating system run as smooth as possible. You know, every once in a while you take your car, you know, in, you bring it in for a tune-up. And then I've been a voracious reader. You know, I, I, I read, and it's 90, I would say 90% is about personal growth still to this day. Um, and, and lifespan, health span, energy, uh, 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 under, like there's a great book I just read called The Dopamine Nation. You know, what the continued hits of dopamine are doing to us. Daring, greatly, deep work, bold. A great book. I think the guy was English. Um, Lost Connections, Joanne Hari. Yep. Fantastic, fantastic yep, books. Yeah, uh, Atomic yeah. Habits. I'm always reading over, uh, constantly, constantly um, on how to best uh, use this operating system that I have and how to best program it, how to best uh, uh, function in this world to be a good man, a good father, a good brother, a good friend, and to be on purpose and not so much look for happiness because happiness is fleeting, but to look for fulfillment where what fulfills me, what gives me that warm, you know, feeling inside. And it's usually good work, you know, uh, being on purpose showing up for myself, listening to my inner voice, um, not letting the ego and the thirst for validation. You know, there's a tremendous thirst for validation. Uh, look at me, look at me, look at me. And it's something that's going on in our society right now, you know, and you can just go plug into your social media, right? And just look at me, look at me, look at me. This tremendous thirst for validation and differentiation to be special. And when I start to feel myself doing that, I have to, you know, I always go back to why, you know, why, why, why? So I think, you know, one of the things is to be tremendously curious about yourself. And again, how I use therapy now is if something happens in my life where i I feel like I get a, a negative reaction, like it, like the car. I like to use a car, like your car, ping, pong, ping, king, you know, kicks or it doesn't start. Like, oh, I better go see the mechanic. When I come across something now, then I just like to have a platform uh, of somebody who I can talk it out with who's not emotionally invested on the outcome, if that makes sense. 
Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Wow, that makes complete sense. So that's, that's really heartening to hear as well because a lot of people go into conversations with minds made up, solutions presented in front of them. And the, at the very start of this conversation before we started recording, yeah, we was having a little bit of a, a back and forth on on certain issues that you know that we're still feeling out. So your your thirst for knowledge is a real credit to you. And it's like again, you've done it again. Where I've got so much to to go from from what you've just said. Um, you mentioned Johan Hari and his books. There's a few books that I think that would be quite interesting to you, like Lost Connection. You, you mentioned Stolen Focus. Um, but one of the things that I really want to go through is that your list of accomplishments are huge. You know, you, you were in the NFL. You were a huge star on American Gladiators, that you know, at the forefront of that television revolution as well. Uh, you was in Ellen, you know, which was a huge show. You was you was in film. What was it like dealing with that? All of a sudden, fame is upon your shoulders, and it relates to what we were just saying about if you look on social media now, everyone wants to be an influencer, everyone wants to be famous in some sort of way. You had fame in the old school way of doing it, where it was earned in one way or another, whether it was through talent sports how did you cope with the pressures of fame and what we we now know it brings uh, so to unpack that I, there was no coping with the pressures of fame fame is a beautiful thing when it happens to you it's there's no pressure in at least a level of fame i had where there is no pressure when people are inviting you to restaurants, they give you the best table, you're making money, women want to date you. That's not pressure. That's being damn lucky, you know? And I, I think when you get to the next level of fame, you know, uh, Idris Alba, Tom Cruise, you know, I th think there's tremendous pressure there. But for me, it was an honor and it was a pleasure to have that fame. But the fame can be like a drug, right? Because at the end of the day, what is it? It's a dopamine hit, right? It's a dopamine hit. Mm -hmm. And you really have to separate yourself from 
that dopamine hit of fame to get back to the work. Because for most people, that fame is fleeting. And if that's all they have to fill them, they're going to be terribly disappointed. But if you can take it back to the work, what is the work that I'm doing? How do I get joy out of that work without it being so tied into the adoration? I think that's the key, Jason. So it wasn't hard at all to cope with uh, what you called the pressures of success. It was the honor of people loving something that you did. Um, and it happened again with Netflix. You know, Netflix went out to, you know, the 220 million subscribers. And, you know, during our first 10 days, we had 15 million hours viewed. And it was a tremendous rush of, you know, being publicly relevant where people, you know, want you to appear on shows. You want me to be on your show. TV shows on the telly are calling. People are sliding into your direct messages. Oh, my God, I loved you. And it's, it, it's again, by, uh, biologically, it's a dopamine rush. You know, just like when you get likes on your uh uh, yeah, social media post, right? You get these likes, you get these likes, you get these likes. Oh my God, you start chasing those likes. What do I need to do to get those likes? Because it's releasing dopamine and it's making you feeling good. So when this happened with Netflix, it was like that for like, you know, a few weeks. And then it got quiet again. And then I felt myself getting a little sad and um, not clinically depressed, but down. Because I wasn't having that constant influx of positive feedback and uh, like and love and adoration. So, you know, having been through this quite a few times, I simply said, okay, I need to get back to work. What am I working on? What's important to me? What do I want to put out into the world? And uh, I started on back writing a, a movie, a couple of movies that I, I'm working on and projects that I'm working on because that's what matters. That's really interesting that you say the honor of fame. That's that in itself shows the mindset that you've got that that you can look at things in a positive light. And this is going to be a really tricky question to answer, pretty and pretty broad as well. But would you say that mindset has helped you with the with the losses that you've had? You know, you've had significant losses in your life. Has your mindset got you through? Life is an inner those losses? What happens to us is exterm external stimuli, and I know this is very clinical. But how we choose to process it determines the kind of life that we're going to live. So, for example, someone gives you a hard time about something. Oh, why did you do that, Jason? And depending on how you process will determine your outcome and your process is built upon your life lessons, how you raise, what your beliefs are, what your identities were. And if you process it as, wow, that person doesn't like me, they've really made me feel bad because they're telling me I did something wrong, you're going to process that and you're going to feel bad. But if your process is, wow, that person just did me a favor, so they're helping me know that I'm wrong so I can find the right path. Wow, that, that was cool. I, I appreciate you sharing your knowledge with me. You know, this is internal dialogue. I appreciate them sharing their knowledge with me. It's not a knock on me. It's I did something wrong and they're helping me how to get better. Thank you for helping me get better. So life is an eternal game. It's how we process. And 
if you're not processing things that serve you the best, you ha- your work is to figure out how do I process this to get a positive outcome and be in a growth mindset. So now you look at trauma. I used to be reactive to what I went through with losing my older brother. And I would, you know, having to unpack that in my 20s, there were a lot of tears. And there was still a sadness about it for quite a few years. You know, I have this little picture of my 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 brother at 12 years old. It's sitting right here uh, by me on my desk. And for so many years, I'd look at that picture and I would feel loss. I'd feel tears. You know, this, this, you know, I, I love him. I miss him. And then I said, you know what? Taking the my own example, life is an insight game, right? And it's been enough years from this. I'm making the choice to look at that at time every time my brother's picture and get sad. It's not necessarily a conscious choice, but it's a choice of a habitual pattern. And then I just said, why am I doing that? I love my brother, man. He was everything to me. And why don't I make a different choice and ingrain that pattern of when I see that picture, I think of the things that we shared. I think that he's watching me right now. Even I'm not religious, but you know, I think that he's watching me right now. He's looking over me and these things I do, I do with him and for him. And would he ever for one moment want me to be sad? No, he would be encouraging me. He would be pushing me on. He would be helping me fight on. So I've learned to change the stimulus and the response to the grief once I've processed the grief. You know, uh, Elizabeth Kula Ross, though, at the five or six stages of grief, you know, she's got that pretty right on. You know, you have to go through those processes. I won't go through them here, uh, but you have to let yourself grieve. And in America, uh, um, we, we do this strange thing that we pride ourselves on how quickly we can overcome our grief. Oh, yeah, yeah, this happened yesterday, but I'm fine. And I think when you don't process it, when you don't allow yourself to be sad, when you don't allow yourself to weep, because that, you know, it's part of the human condition, you never really overcome that grief. Joan Didion, you know, a great American writer, one of my uh, favorite authors, um, she wrote a book, uh, I think it was called The Year of Magical Thinking. And it was talking about, you know, losing her husband. Uh, um, and she talks a lot about this processing of grief and how we allow ourselves to be broken in order to heal. Because if you don't allow that moment of brokenness, you never truly, I don't think, heal from it. So I'm not saying you just rush past, oh, I lost my best friend. I'm fantastic. Let's go to the pub. Yeah, I, I lost my best friend. Fuck, I, I, I'm hurting inside. You know, I, I'm, I'm really sad about this. I'm going to sit in this and process this. And then eventually you work through that process. So all the trauma that's happened in my life is, you know, made me who I am today. You know, it's made me be more compassionate, more empathetic. It's made me be more human and vulnerable where I think I can relate to a much wider spectrum of people uh, who've gone through trauma, who've faced trauma, than if 
I had a life where nothing has happened to me. And, you know, another thing I think, which is really, I don't know if dangerous is the right word, but it's our use of language now. I don't know how it is in the UK, but now sometimes where people will say, oh, trauma. It was so traumatic. You know, there was 10 minutes of extra traffic, you know, <laughs> today taking, you know, you know, this, this way. Oh, it's trauma. You know, my credit card bill is late. It's so traumatic because words have meaning. Words have impact on our nervous system. Right. And, and you walk around in constant stress over little things that simply don't matter. It leads to the breakdown of the immune system and disease. So I, I'm, I'm very careful with my words. And I, it, it, it bugs my wife, <laughs> you know, because she'll say something. I'll say, was that really traumatic, honey? Or, or and she's just like, don't do that. Because I, I just believe words are, oh, it was a disaster. No, a disaster was what happened in Maui. You know, the largest wildfire, I don't know if you're up on current, the largest wildfire and the most deaths in, in modern American history. That's a disaster. You know, you your dinner getting canceled is not a disaster. You, you know what I mean? It's like a, an inconvenience and you would prefer other things to happen. But it, yeah, so, so you ask about, you know, trauma. Again, I don't ever want to lose that being in touch with what's happened to me because that's what keeps me in touch with my humanity i love your mindset and it's something that i've always personally tried to advocate for as well is whatever traumas uh, or whatever it, life existence might be resting on your shoulders makes who you are today and it's going to be one of my questions to you of who you are now do you look back at your father in particular? Is there any regrets, any any discourtesy? Any? Do you have any feelings that are negative towards that situation that he went through and potentially put you through? Absolutely. You know, I, I understand forgiveness. Um, and forgiveness is a lot about releasing that anger so that person does not have control over you. So you can open your heart and let other things in that are more positive in space. But I still haven't been able to let it all go for him. I, I'm still angry at him. I still feel resentment at, towards him. And, uh, you know, my younger brother, too, the one who, you know, died of alcohol-related disease. I'm still angry. And that's the effect of addiction. You know, uh, I, I'm angry at my father for a lot of things. And I'm angry that he died before I got to tell him how I felt. You know, um, I was always going to have those conversations with him. You know, uh, he had a volatile temper. He was angry. He would yell. He would never apologize. He would never own up for his... Uh, his, um, you know, my sister asked him once, you know, when he was alive, how come you never talked to us about, you know, our brother dying and you kind of helped, you know, helped us and guided us. And, he, and his answer was like, I was in so much pain. How could I? What about me? Who was supposed to take care of me? And yeah, so there's a lot of anger at my father for dying too soon. I mean, it's not the anger where it keeps me up at night where I walk around and I'm angry. You know, I'm a happy, uh, pretty grounded person. I have a lot of tools that, you know, I use in my life to 
you know, to keep me in that inner peace state, which isn't, I am not, I'm not, I don't walk around like a monk or a mother Teresa. I still get angry. I still get upset. I still worry, but pretty, pretty much over darn overall, I have a, yeah, I've created a good life for myself and, and I'm pretty, you know, uh, happy in my life and fulfilled a lot of things I still want, but yeah, when it comes to him, I think I struggle with letting it go. I struggle with making peace with him. I struggle with finding love in my heart for him. And it might just be that way for the rest of my life. And and I'm okay with that. I'm okay with that. It's not keeping me from happiness, love, fulfillment in my life. And and you know, do you know what I mean? I think so many people think we have to clear everything out. You don't have to. As long as it's not as long as it's not affecting how you function in a, as a human being, we're, we're okay to be disappointed with people. It's okay to be disappointed with your parents still, even when they're gone. They did stupid shit and um, they didn't take value of their life. They were very selfish. They, um, they didn't get the help they needed and they're gone. And, um, you know, I, I resent him and I'll be angry at him for it. Do you, do you ever put a different spin on it you're very good at having the tools that work for you uh, and you you are very grounded it's very apparent and the eloquence as well yeah you've got a really successful ted talk out there which i really recommend people go and check out do you ever put in a positive spin in the sense that has has the, your dad's passing and the journey that you've had with your father has it driven you towards the successes that you've had or or is the successes just been completely you you know you've done them yourself I, my dad was a charismatic man. He would walk into a room and he would look at you and shake your hand and talk to you. And you would feel like, you know, the most important person on the planet. And when he was operating at his best and I thank him for that because he's given me that ability and, and I saw him do that and I saw it, how it made people feel. When you focused on them, when you gave them their attention, when you shook their hand firmly, you know, and, and and were present with them. That was my father at his best. So I thank my father for that. Because my father was an addict and I had addiction issues when I was younger and he died from an overdose, I will never be, and I, I know this isn't the proper terminology, but I'll never be an addict. You know, I, I will never be an addict. I will not be addicted to something and let him control my life. And maybe that's why I keep some of that anger there. And maybe it's not even anger. Maybe it's more resentment if I was able to label the emotion correctly. Maybe I keep some of that resentment there because if I keep it there, it helps me remember how I don't want to live, if that makes sense. Um, my, my father, you know, didn't really give me any tools to succeed in life. Um, he was so busy dealing with his things. Uh, my mother, I ended up having a, they were divorced when I was five years old, but I ended up having a wonderful relationship with my mother, you know, later in my life, uh, from my twenties on. And you know, I loved her uh, to death and, you know. She was who she was, 
as far as her emotional capabilities based upon who she was in her culture. But as she got older, she was able to show tremendous love and support. And um, yeah, I loved her to death, you know, and I loved her until she died. You know, she died in her 80s of, you know, uh, cancer, you know, so uh, yeah. But for me, for someone who didn't have role models guiding the, guiding them, I was a, a loose cannon and I had to figure out a way to live. And I found it through books. I found it through learning. And I was a guy who didn't read a book in college. <laughs> I mean, I don't think I'd read one book in college. I was an American <laughs> football player on football scholarship. I hated reading. And, uh, but I found a love for reading. I think when I was in uh, Italy playing American football and they only had, they didn't have any TV. This is before cable. This is before internet. This was uh, 1988 and they didn't have American TV and they didn't have American radio. So I, I had nothing to entertain myself in the, in the downtime for playing American football. So I started going to the bookstore. They had an American bookstore uh, in Milan and I started buying a lot of books and I started reading books and I was like, wow, this person has spent a lifetime studying a particular subject and I can read these 200 pages, highlight, outline, make notes and absorb that lifetime of expertise and knowledge that they've put out there for me. I said, wow, this is great. And it also, reading also gives you the uh, autonomy to take in stuff and process it in your own time, in your own way. If you look at any of my books I've read, like I, I'm looking right here at my, uh, the happiness equation, find your why, the way of the superior man, uh, crucial conversations, fast thinking, letting go, grit, one thing, solve for happy, mindset, mindful loving, well-being. I mean, it just goes on and on and on. Each of my books, I highlight, I take notes. And these are just ideas and thoughts on on the way I, I want to live my life. And from taking in so much of this knowledge, I now, you know, have a, a pretty good idea of how I want to live. And I, I read also a lot of uh, memoirs and uh, biographies about people who've done tremendous things on the planet. And I also read a bunch of um, Eastern philosophy books like you. You know, I was looking for a philosophy that worked for me and it wasn't... Um, I wasn't finding it in, uh, you know, the Christianity, Catholicism, uh, uh, Dianetics. <laughs> so I had to find, in, I'm half Japanese, so I, I got it a lot into the Eastern philosophy, um, which seemed to help as well. You, you, you mentioned some of the, some of the you know, quasi-addiction issues that you've been through uh, and why, and it's really, really poignant moving moments as well, you know, you, you handle it beautifully on the screen um but also the lifestyle that especially with the touring lifestyle of the american gladiators you know the 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 studio performance is very different from the touring aspect you you go into that quite a lot in detail when you were on tour it was basically like a rock star tour of of, of american gladiators what was the lifestyle like then you know it's it lends itself and it sort of tips its hat to hedonism was it as party lifestyle as what we could imagine it was very hedonistic but that's what my lifestyle was in my 20s it was very hedonistic but that's what my lifestyle was in my 20s it just didn't change it just went on the road <laughs> you know what i mean it didn't change that's what i was doing day in and day out in my 20s 
Um, and then we, we just took it on a tour. I did it. We did it across the country. Um, and, uh, you, you know, the sneaky thing about drugs is this, at least for my personal experience is you don't think you're doing them because you're unhappy. I never once when I was partying, you know, uh, took a drug. I said, I'm unhappy. I want to feel better. Not once did I ever do that. It was, this is a party. How do we party harder? Right? You know, I feel good. How do I feel even better? That's how drugs were until that thing creeped up inside of me, like we talked about earlier, which was the sadness and the grief that the drugs eventually couldn't cover. You know, when you have everything you want, then you find out what you need. Right? I had everything I wanted. And then I found out what I needed as a human being. Um, so now through time, like we talked about earlier, if I have a drink, I kind of know why. Oh, you know, I, I want to loosen up a little around my friends or out, or, or out, you know, make me a little I'll laugh a little. I'm very cognizant and very aware of it. You know, if, if I'm, you know, marijuana is legal here. If I'm going to, you know, uh, have an edible or something. I, I know why. And I also very clear too is, is the consequence of that. You know, if I do an edible and I say, okay, I'll feel good, you know, for three, four hours, I'll be hungry as hell. It's hard to keep on my diet. Um, but I'm going to wake up normally. I found a little cloudy. I have an aura ring, which is a sleep monitor. Whenever I do an edible or anything like that, it messes up with my deep sleep. So I'm not getting that restorative sleep. The same thing with one drink. I have one drink. It, I mean, and, and that's the great thing about it because in real time with this aura ring, you can see the effects of what you do. Like I thought THC and was helping me sleep better. Certain strands were helping me fall asleep quicker, but I wasn't getting deep, restful sleep. A drink may make me relax in the moment and, and, and you know, put down that, that analytical, like, that quiet, that analytical part of my brain where I'm, you know, thinking what people are thinking about me, what, you know, am I, am I making a good impression in that part of my brain and just let me have fun and be funny and be loose. But then I look at, you know, what it does to my body. I said, oh, I wake up and, you know, I got to pee three times. I don't get deep sleep. So I, now I really understand the purpose and the cost for doing it. And I weigh it out. You know, I weigh it out. You know, I, I think you have to be informed on what it is. But back to the earlier thing, when, when you're younger, when I was younger, and that's what's so sneaky about drugs, I never did them because I felt depressed, lonely, sad, or unhappy. I just wanted to feel even better. What I was feeling, the fame, all this, it wasn't enough. Let's go drink. Let's go have more. And then I think I came to the stark realization, you know, starting to do the personal work, I think it was new. I think it was like a New Year's party or something. It was let's go, let's get drink, let's get drugs, and I and I just said, wait a second. I'm celebrating with all my best friends and the people I love in my life. We're having a fantastic meal. We're all together. What do I need more? And when I started asking myself that question, hey, I'm going, I'm, I'm going away on the trip with the boys. You know, and someone says, let's do this, let's do that. And I'd be like, why? 
This is what I work for. This is what I want. I try to carve out those, those times. Why do I need to try to add to that? I don't. It's enough. It's enough. And it's this type of self-introspection, I think, this type of work, you know, when we see what we're doing and why we're doing it, I think is helpful on the path to recovery. Again, it's so sneaky because most people don't do it because they feel they're cognizantly, consciously aware that they're feeling something negative. They're just so used to habitually doing it and feeling different. And that's why it's dangerous. At the beginning, I think before we start recording, you mentioned that you've got an awareness of harm reduction and what it means. And it's something that I've been really interested in in sports um, is the harm reduction element of pain injuries, opioid use. You mentioned that you you have consumed uh, cannabis and marijuana and edibles. Do you think there's any place, because things are starting to change in regards to NFL, UFC, where cannabis is no longer the banned substance, could there be a harm reduction element to cannabis use within those sports? Well, look, I think marijuana is legal in 38 states in the United States, but it's still not legal federally. So because that's the policy federally and all states aren't on board and there's no federal law, I think the NFL has still chosen not to penalize anymore. I think that that just this April, they made the decision not to penalize or, or to test for it. So if you don't test for it, you don't find it, you can't penalize it. I think it's, you know, ludicrous to take something that, you know, like marijuana and, you know, put people in jail for it. Uh, just like it would be for alcohol. I, I think, you know, I, I, I'm not a big marijuana user. Yeah. Um, I have obviously, you know, used it. it uh, um, but I, yeah, I think it's, you know, in the similar thing as alcohol, you know, what you're trying to do is change your state. Um, that's, that's all I, I, I feeling kind of tired. I want to feel this way. I'm feeling a little bit you know stressed. I want to feel this way. They're all state changers. And, you know, I'll, I'll use it, go to a concert once in a while, you know, music sounds a little better, um, to change the state, to be, uh, more sensorily aware. But I think the idea that, you know, uh, sports are still criminalizing it is, uh, ridiculous. So, so my final point to you, you've, you've had genuinely such an incredible life. It's been amazing to see from my perspective of being that 12-year-old boy that was watching it late night TV here to now actually get to speak to you. It's just, it's a it's a humbling thing for me. I don't geek out often, but I am today. Um, would, is there anything that you'd go back and change? Is there anything that you maybe want to highlight more and go, actually, no, I want to be known for this. You know, how, how is your retrospective of your life? Obviously, you've got so much more to give as well, but yeah, you know, what is your retrospective? <laughs> you, you put me in the grave already, huh? <laughs> exactly. <That's laughs> you're done. Go. <laughs> You've expired. Your, your usefulness has expired in society. Um, yeah, I, I try not to go down those thought paths because – when there's something that you can't change because the one thing we learn is the impermanence of life and sometimes holding on to things, not wanting change 
causes your suffering. I have to let go of everything in the past the best I can. You know, we spoke about my father. There's still resentment towards him, but I think it might be a good thing. It keeps me knowing I don't want to live that way and be that way. So I think that resentment helps. But, you know, everything changes. And I can't go back and change the past. All I can do is use the past as a guide to how I want to be in the future. You know, um, if that makes sense. So I don't really go in those conversations and look what I would change. There are some regrets, but I like to try to keep forward focus using the past as a tool. Is, you know, for people is to, you know, be kind to others and be kind to yourself. I think we're so hard on ourselves these days, and, and, and it's really a paradox because you have to grind and you got to work and you've got to have, you know, tremendous self-discipline to succeed. But I think self-discipline, sometimes you can look at it as, you know, love yourself. Love yourself enough to do the right things for yourself that matter, that can change your life in a positive way. And if something isn't running correctly and working under the hood, then go and lift up that hood and do the work necessary to keep you running in the best possible fashion that will lead you down to the path of health, happiness, and fulfillment. Thank you so much, Dan. That was, I didn't know what to expect from this conversation, but it was just, it was everything I hoped for because I, I'm, a, I'm a fan. I'm completely geeking out, but you've, you've been so eloquent. And the life journey that you've had, I keep saying it, it's been incredible to behold. It's just, it's, you know, I think, I think there is another Hollywood story in this. I really do. So thank you so much, Dan, for joining me. Uh, I'm going to call you Nitro. Thank you so much. Well, Jason, eloquent are usually not the words I hear when people are describing me. So I, th I thank you for that. And I thank you for, you know, allowing me to use your platform and to come out and let my voice be heard. And, you know, my hope is that, um, you know, anyone struggling with different challenges with mental health and addiction, that they have the strength, the courage and the veracity to raise their hand up and get the help they need to get back right on the path. Because uh, I am here because I raised my hand and got the help I needed. And I'm a testament to it. And I'm also a testament that you can, you know, overcome trauma in your life and, and go on to happier and more fulfilled days. So again, thank you so much, Jason. Thank you so much for listening. And thank you, Dan, for giving me that incredible conversation. I was starstruck. No getting around it. I've been aware of Dan my pretty much my whole life. But to actually meet and speak to the real Nitro just doesn't get any better than that, does it? It really doesn't. And if you want to check out the documentary on Netflix, Muscles and Mayhem, go find it. It is really insightful, really good. And please do find Dan as well on Instagram, Dan Nitro Clark, and his website, dannitroclark.net. And his book, F Dying, we didn't really get into it on the podcast, but it's so interesting. I really recommend you check it out. It's Brush With Death. And it delves into all the positive aspects that he's drawn from that experience and, and broader life experience as well. Please do check it out. 
And if you want to find out what's happening in the world of law enforcement action partnership, LEAP, then find your local branch across the globe. But in the US, it's LE Action Partnership on Instagram, lawenforcementactionpartnership.org, our website, and Police for Reform on Twitter, stroke X. And if you're in the UK, then find us at UK Leap on Instagram and Twitter, and at ukleap.org is our Facebook and website. Right. A few thank yous. Of course, thank you, Dan, again, for just being Nitro. Absolutely fantastic. <laughs> yep, I'm still Starstruck. I'm still there. But of course, thank you to Nikki, the producer, for everything you do. Thank you to John for the artwork, Tristan for everything you do. Thank you to My Name is Ad for the artwork, Johnny Borrell for the theme tune, Scroobius Pit for having it on your Distraction Pieces Network, and John at Distraction Pieces Network for all you do. And of course, you listeners, we wouldn't be doing it without you. Thank you for everything you do for subscribing, listening, sharing. Don't just agree with us, use us and share us. All right, on, on that note, I'll bid you farewell. And thank you so much again, Dan, and I'll see you again later. Bye. Behind your How long can I stay Behind your barricades Where true values seldom stray Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.